After thousands of years of God governing his people through the patriarchs and the judges and the kings and the prophets, he has supposedly gone silent. 450 years pass with no apparent divine word from God to his people. Over 15 generations of Israel come and go with no legitimate prophetic word. The Roman Empire has been established and has made itself known to Israel. Their rule is final and their empire is expanding. God's people await the Messiah that has been foretold in Scripture. Temple worship continues and the rituals of God's covenant are still in play. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at the larger scope of the biblical timeline, I more than often fail to grasp the actual length of time that it spans over. And whenever I hear that the intertestamental period, as it's called, was over 450 years, it doesn't really faze me, to be honest. It feels almost like the people of Israel went a couple of months without hearing anything from God. But the reality of it is, 450 years ago from today, Elizabeth I was Queen of England. For those living in the time of Zechariah, divine revelation and prophecy were as relevant and contemporary as the painting of the Mona Lisa is to us. Divine proclamation has faded into the shadow of the past and all that God's people have left are the rituals and sacrifices instructed to them through the books of the law written about 1,200 years previous. I wonder how much anticipation of the promised Messiah they really had at this point. How much genuine, hopeful faith was burning within them. After the establishment of the Roman Empire and the further division of the kingdom that is now scattered, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that God's people began to feel abandoned. For hundreds of years, they have read about the incredible works of God from the exodus of the Israelites in Egypt to the prophetic words of Isaiah and Jeremiah. But I'm sure that after all these years of silence, these words become to them just like historical writings with little sense of promise or hope. Now let's look at the subject of these writings. Zechariah, along with his wife, Elizabeth, were, according to verse 6, both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. To be unable to bear children in this time was seen as a wrathful judgment from God. God had closed your womb as judgment for your sins. In Genesis 16, Abraham's wife Sarah is barren and states that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Fertility is a gift from God, and Elizabeth is supposedly unworthy for such a gift. Try to imagine the shame that lay over their heads. Not only the shame, but the hopelessness of it all. Verse 7 goes on to clarify that they were both advanced in years. Not only are they burdened by the weight of the shame of being childless, but being so advanced in years gives them no reason to hope that maybe someday a child would be theirs to raise. So we've seen the wider historical context of God's people and nations supposedly abandoned and alone, and Zechariah and Elizabeth, an elderly couple, burdened by shame, judgment, and heartbreak. As we can see, it's fair to say the people of this passage have every reason to be void of any expectancy, or dare I say, hope. 
was this silence really an absence of God? Was Elizabeth's inability to bear children really judgment from God, as it was quite blatantly perceived to be? Well, the prophet Habakkuk lays his heartfelt complaint before the Lord. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you look idly at wrong? And in chapter 1, verse 5 of Habakkuk, God replies the following. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Throughout scripture, we are told again and again that God works in such a perfect way. And yet, the great burden of our humanity is that we never truly seem to believe it. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I think one of humanity's greatest flaws is that in order to believe something, we like to see results. And in order to trust something, we like to see results that bode well for us. One of the most widely known verses in the Bible is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. But I wonder how many people who rely so heavily on this promise understand the actual context under which it was written. That God spoke through these words, through Jeremiah, God's people are currently in exile, forced from their homes, from their land, with little sense of hope. When God says that I know the plans I have for you, he is declaring that he has seen the sinful nature of his people and that this time of exile is a just and necessary part of God's restoration of his people. This period of Israel's history in which God ceases to reveal anything is not an absence of any sort. And Elizabeth's inability to bear children was no punishment at all. For God to abandon his people would be completely counteractive to his very nature. When Moses asks God what he, what he shall say his name is, God says, I am who I am. Say that I am sent you. God is constant. God is eternal. He is unchanging. And the only thing that is equally eternal and unchanging to God's very existence is his love for us. Deuteronomy 31.6 Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. It can be a lot easier to picture God's hand moving and shaping our lives in the times in which we see his guidance so clearly. But whenever it feels to us that God is silent, his hand is still moving all the same. I know that, I know that I'm young and that life has barely begun for me. And I understand that the wisdom of the older generations comes from their experience of suffering through life's trials and making it out the other end. I know that when we hear the words of Romans 5 that say, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We look to those whose faithful character is like an aging battle wound. But I also like to think that I have had experiences in my short life that merit an application of God's supposed silence. Those who have heard any of my own personal testimony of faith will know that a large part of my discovering what it truly means to have faith in God's love was through my ongoing struggle with mental health. From the age of around 17, I became a slave to irrational anxiety and severe depression. No matter how many people surrounded me, I could not help but feel completely alone. No matter how much laughter I experienced, joy simply passed me by. Hopeless is the word. I saw no reason to get up in the morning because I made little or no impact on anybody's life. Safe to say, I was so angry at God in this time. Not once did I tell myself that he didn't exist, but I was so angry that he supposedly abandoned me to my sufferings. Charles Spurgeon, arguably one of the greatest preachers of his time, states that, If we believe that God has left us to our miseries and hardships, there is a torment within the breast which I can only liken to the prelude of hell. I poured out my heart to God and pleaded for mercy and salvation from this hardship, and yet it continued. I'm telling you now, folks, God's grip on my life did not for one second listen. For not one moment did God's ears turn from me. Now, I'm not telling you that my sufferings were God's work. But what I am telling you is that God used my sufferings in such a perfect way in his love for me. Through these times that I will tell you now are ongoing, I discovered a faith in the name of Jesus Christ that has become my rock and my fortress. It was through this vital period of suffering that my heart was realigned to understand my purpose. While before this time, I know that I love God, but he wasn't my life's purpose. And now, here I am, preparing my path into a life of ministry, with a burning sense of purpose guiding my every single step. I bring us back to Habakkuk, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. There is no way that I would have believed God if he plainly told me the works he was doing in my suffering at that time. I needed to have the faith to keep looking forward and know that he is God. Little did I know, little did the people of Israel know, and little did Zechariah and Elizabeth know, that the plan behind all of this was Jesus Christ, the perfecter of our faith and saviour of our very souls. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many people will rejoice at his birth, for he will be a great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. After 450 years, God has revealed himself once more. And not only that, but God has revealed to Zechariah a purpose. Your suffering of childlessness has come to an end, and your child will be great before the Lord. This is fulfillment for Zechariah. The God that he has dedicated his entire life to worshipping has revealed himself to him. Throughout his whole adult life, Zechariah has been plagued with asking God why he has been left childless and has received no revelation until now. After all this time, his questions are answered and God takes away his ability to speak. And here lies the second vital truth that God speaks to us through this passage. I myself find it very easy to read over this passage and see Zechariah's muting as a punishment for his disbelief. You will be unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah does not believe God's promise to him and must be justly punished. But there's so much more to significance to this than simple punishment. We need to remember that the purpose of John the Baptist, Zechariah's son, is to prepare Israel for the coming of Jesus Christ. And timing is a vital part of that. The people of Israel are awaiting their Messiah. And if Zechariah runs into the streets declaring that an angel of the Lord has blessed him with a son and he will go out in the power of Elijah, turning the disobedient to the wise, it won't take very long for John to be worshipped as the messianic figure they so eagerly hope for. Not only is Zechariah unable to speak, but we see that in verse 24, Elizabeth hid herself away for five months during the pregnancy. Because it will be the purpose of John the Baptist to turn the eyes of the people to Jesus Christ, rather than their eyes be turned to him. It is made clear to us throughout the New Testament that we as humans are very easily led astray. Because a large majority of Paul's letters are warnings about the influence of false preachers. And God did not want his people led astray to worship John the Baptist, because we see he will be great before the Lord, and he, he, but he cannot save God's people from their sin. We do see later on in chapter 3 that the people begin to question that John is the Christ. But John famously declares that he who is mightier than I is coming. The vital truth that is made clear to us in the silencing of Zechariah is that God's timing will always be greater than our own because God's timing will always lead to Jesus Christ. What greater feeling is there than when we experience God's revelation of our purpose? We will always go through these seasons of spiritual abandonment and doubt and purposelessness. But when our prayers are answered and it is made clear to us how God plans to use us, in the, it is the most wonderful feeling in the world. But it is such an important discipline to recognize that we, that just because God reveals our purpose to us does not mean that we will see immediate change. I return to what I previously said about 
why I think one of humanity's greatest flaws is that in order to believe something, we like to see results. And in order to trust something, we like to see results that bode well for us. We want things now. Those who are closest to me know that I am an impatient pain in the neck. There is nothing I hate more than when someone says, I'll tell you later. And this weakness found its way into my walk with Jesus. I would constantly find myself doubting God's plan for me if I didn't see immediate change or progress in my life. I wanted my sufferings to end immediately, but God knew what was ahead and planned accordingly. Why? Because if my suffering was short-lived and brief, as thankful as I would be, I would overlook it as an insignificant time of just feeling a bit rough. But in acknowledging the weight of the sufferings that I had to bear, it allowed me to recognize that it was by God's strength that I made it through, and it was God's faithfulness that saved me. God made a covenantal promise with us that he will never cease to work for our good in such a perfect way. But as our purpose as created humans is for the glory of God and the worship of his name, it is indisputable that in being saved from our sufferings, we must acknowledge God's hand in it and not our own. And if our sufferings are short-lived, or dare I say, non-existent, how quick will we be to dismiss the significance of how God works in our lives? 450 years of silence and a mute priest, all woven together so perfectly that it led to our salvation from our sins. And by the grace of Jesus Christ has led to our inheritance of eternal peace and glory. Throughout this supposed absence of God and supposed judgment of unworthiness was God's perfect plan for our redemption. The time for rejoicing is now because we are not waiting for our salvation. We are not waiting for someone to pay the price for our sin. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Exodus, God the Father declared his internal nature by, in being, I am, reassuring his people that he will never abandon them or forsake them, and that through all sufferings and trials, he will be there. And now, Jesus Christ, who descended to the dead for us, paid the price for us, and rose again for us, once again assures us that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is eternal. His promise of his love for us is eternal. When we find ourselves in a time of our life which appears that God has abandoned us and that we have been left to our sufferings with no hope, Remember that 450 years of silence led to our perfect salvation and that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I promise you this. Satan will tell you that you're alone. Satan will tell you that you have been abandoned. 
but it is in the season of silence that God is most at work, preparing us for things so perfect that we would not believe if told. And so long as we have faith in Jesus Christ and trust in his strength within us by the power of his Holy Spirit, then we will never lose this battle. Trust in his perfect timing. He knows our future. He knows our destiny. It is just as the song that we are learning today says, by his blood and in his name, in his freedom, I am free for the love of Jesus Christ who has resurrected me. Let us pray.